This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Tuesday, the 26th of May, 2020. I'm your host, Ariane Potts. Tonight, there's some new research from the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society about what people living with HIV think about cure research and the impact that a cure would have on their everyday lives. And with politics as usual seeming to come back with a bit of a roar, we find out how the religious speech debate has affected people of colour. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Tuesday the 26th of May. The global death toll from COVID-19 has passed 345,000. There have been over 5.4 million confirmed cases with 2.1 million recoveries. Australia's death toll stands at 102. There are less than 500 still active cases and most states have reported another day of zero new cases. Human trials for a COVID-19 vaccine began in Melbourne today, marking Australia's first human trial of a potential vaccine. The drugs being trialled have been developed by a United States biotech company, Novavax, and are aimed at enhancing the immune response and increasing antibodies. 130 people between the ages of 18 and 59 are involved in the program and preliminary results are expected to come in July. The United States Embassy in Canberra has apologised to the Australian government over a State Department document used in a newspaper article to link the origins of COVID-19 to a Wuhan lab. Described in the article in the Saturday Telegraphed as a Western government's dossier, the document was actually a timeline of events containing no new evidence on the origin of COVID-19. The publicising of the document caused concerns in Canberra that the United States was trying to push false information into Australia to create anti-China sentiment. The Federal Tourism Minister, Simon Birmingham, is accusing the Queensland government of pretending Australia has been unsuccessful in fighting COVID-19. Speaking about the reliance Australia's economy has on tourism, he says continuing to keep state borders shut risks crippling Australia's economy. Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania and the Northern Territory have all shut their borders despite the growing calls from the Federal Government and New South Wales to open them. All clinical trials of anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine, which some have touted as a preventative measure or cure to COVID-19, have been suspended by the World Health Organization over safety concerns. United States President Donald Trump claims to have been using the drug to ward off COVID-19, despite there being little evidence of its effectiveness against the disease. The drug has been linked to an increased risk of heart problems and death, so testing will be paused while the safety of trials is examined and more data is collected. The Australian Medical Association is criticising plans proposed by the NRL to get fans back into stadiums as early as July. AMA President Dr Tony Bartoni 
calls the proposal absurd and dangerous, saying the league should be focused on keeping their players and staff healthy instead of risking the health of fans. A detailed submission will be given to the New South Wales government in the coming weeks, outlining a slow return of crowds. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. A recent study published in PLUS One, an open science journal, looked into the attitudes of 30,000 Australians living with HIV. The study was about clinical research into a cure for HIV and how willing they were to contribute to clinical trials. Nicholas Kamenu-Sandry spoke with Dr. Jennifer Powers, a senior health fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society, who led the study to learn more about the findings. We did a small study looking at the attitudes of people living with HIV towards recent research um, that's that's moving towards a cure for HIV. So it's very early stage clinical research or scientific research. Um, and we're interested in this largely because um, for people living with HIV today, um, treatment, medicine is pretty good. So if someone's taking HIV antiretroviral treatment um, and their viral load is depressed, then they, they can't transmit. HIV via sex, um, their health will be pretty good, their immune system will be protected, um, and they can assume that their life you know, will be pretty long and healthy. Um, participating in a study to, um, towards a cure for HIV might involve some risks. Um, often those risks might be um, related to having to stop your HIV treatment for a while, um, or there might be risks associated with the the study itself, so whether that's um, potential side effects from medications um, or sort of biopsies or, you know, anything involving blood draws and stuff, which might involve a small amount of pain. Um, We were just interested in why people might volunteer for to participate in an HIV cure trial um, when it brings risks, but there's no chance of clinical benefit. So, you know, it's, a, it's such early stage research that there's not going to be a cure any, any day soon um, and that these people won't be sort of, their health won't be improved by participating in a study. So why would people do that? Um, we were looking at things of altruism and what it really meant for someone to participate in clinical research as a kind of form of activism or, or giving back to community. So a person participating in HIV treatment uh, sort of trials, in order for us to be able to know whether or not it's an effective treatment, they would have to go off of their current HIV treatment, which may put them at further risk of their HIV load rebounding. Is that basically the long and short of what you're saying? Yeah, basically. So in intervention, yes. So if an intervention that's likely to cure HIV, which means that the HIV will say suppressed in someone's system, even when they're off medication, will require what's called analytical treatment interruption, which is going off HIV medication for a short period of time um, or, you know, for some months to see if that happens, to see if 
HIV stays suppressed even without medication, which would indicate that there's some success of the potential interventions um, toward a cure for HIV. It's really important to stress that we're not talking cure, we're talking really exploratory early stage. So is that a challenge for HIV research? Like if, if you're saying to HIV patients, we want you to participate in a clinical trial of new treatments, but the treatments are not a cure, you know, um, uh, are you finding that the HIV patients, are they willing to step up to that kind of treatment or, or that kind of, you know, test of future treatments? Or is our current um, treatment of HIV, do they consider that good enough that the only thing that would, that they would want to be able to step up and potentially put themselves at risk for is a flat-out cure where HIV is just eliminated from the body and their viral load never rebounds? Um, yeah, it's, that's a really good question. It's Interestingly, a lot of people are. A lot of people say that they are willing to participate in trials even if they know they won't get benefit or they know that it won't result in a cure that's going to mean elimination from the body. Um, and people's reasons for this are pretty varied, but a lot of people who are healthy will say that they want to be able to give back to people that helped them or they want to be able to you know, draw some positive benefit out of their HIV diagnosis. So for some people, being diagnosed with HIV was, was challenging and difficult for them and they see the opportunity to contribute to a clinical study that may lead to future improvements in treatment, if not a cure, as, as a good thing that they can offer, as a, as a thing that would be good for them to make meaning out of their diagnosis and a good thing for other people. So it's really about people wanting to help and to give back and be part of community. So almost a, for some people a form of activism, I guess, to participate mm. in research and to be involved in the research community. Mm. So people are pretty altruistic. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to see. What are the risks associated to a person's health uh, for stopping their medication to, to participate in these trials? Like, I imagine the risk is certainly controlled for. Like, people probably wouldn't be putting their lives at risk. People would just be risking some adverse health effects. Is that the kind of thing we're looking at? Yeah, I mean, that's right. If you're involved in a clinical trial, then you're so well looked after and closely monitored. So um, the risk is that, well, there's a chance that your um, HIV viral load will rebound so that, so that the virus will be detectable in your system. Um, that won't necessarily lead to any health effects in the short term. And if someone's viral load does rebound significantly, they'll be put back on, you know, most trials would put them back on medication pretty quickly. So what we found in our study was not, that was the biggest concern for most people wasn't so much the health impact, although that was a little bit in the back of people's minds, and they were a little bit concerned that they would develop resistance to their current medications um, mm. if they went off for a while, which can happen. But people were more concerned about what it meant for them kind of emotionally to have a detectable viral load or a high level of virus in the system. Um, I think for a lot of people living with HIV, this sort of monitoring of viral load and working towards um, an undetectable viral load and so suppression of the virus in the body is, is a really big thing because it's kind of a way to monitor health. It's a way to feel okay about the virus. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on undetectability as being um, untransmiss untransmissible. So if you're undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV sexually. 
Um, so being undetectable is important for a lot of people. So being involved in a study where you know you're not going to be undetectable for a period of time, um, some people said that could be quite confronting for them. They'd have to really think about what that meant for them. Um, and of course, also what that could mean for their sexual partners. So they'd have to um, make sure their partners were on prep or certainly go back to using condoms and things again. Did you look at the, um, you know, the emotional and psychological response to the idea of a cure and what that would do for people who are on HIV treatment? I mean, there's a few things in that. So firstly, I think the whole notion of a cure for HIV is, is fraught historically and politically. So I don't know if you remember, but in the early days of HIV, there was this kind of constant promise of a cure on the horizon. So in the 80s and early 90s, um, there was sort of lots of what turned out to be false reporting on a cure. And people were kind of waiting for a cure. It took a while for us to realise that this was a long way off and that this virus was more complex than what possibly was realised in the early days. Um, and so we had people say to us things like they had to disengage from any talk of a cure. They just, so there's one person who talked about how he doesn't want to wake up every day um, wondering if it's the day there'll be a cure for HIV because that just makes it too difficult to live with HIV for him. So living with HIV, getting his head around what that means in his life and getting used to it and being comfortable with it actually required him to just not pay attention to any reporting of research for a cure. Does that make sense? It was sort of created a yeah. roller coaster. The other thing with HIV cure research is um, what the research is possibly going to end up being or what the outcome is going to end up being. So um, it's potential. It's potentially what will eventuate is not a cure which results in the elimination of the virus from the body, um, but long-term medication-free depression of the virus. So the virus HIV would be suppressed in someone's body, but they wouldn't have to take medication forever or for a long period of time. Hmm. Um, so that's more potentially like a, a form of remission than a cure. And certainly when we spoke to people about how they perceived a cure, um, they saw that as remission and they didn't see it as a cure. And, and that's got some implications for people. certainly considered a welcome advancement on treatment. Not having to take a pill every day would be great. But also, at the moment, treatments provide a, a level of certainty for people. So we know that antiretroviral treatment is really effective. Um, most people don't have side effects. It's pretty easy to take. People take it every day and they can trust that their viral load will, will remain suppressed. Um, if there's a sort of new therapy and this sort of longer-term um, medication-free viral depression, it might take a while for people to feel confident with that, to, to trust that their virus won't rebound or that they won't have continual blips in their virus rebounding. Hmm. So people were definitely keen on research towards a form of remission, um, but there were some, you know, reservations about whether they would take that up straight away, but certainly that wasn't seen as a cure, it was seen as a treatment. That was Dr. Jennifer Powers, Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society, speaking to Informer reporter Nicholas Kamenyar-Sandry. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network.
As the debate over religious freedom has raged around Australia, the voices of religious LGBTI people of colour has been noticeably absent. Neha Madok is the national co-director of Democracy in Colour. She spoke to the informers Toby Halligan about the impact that the debate has had on people of colour. So our concerns are twofold and what they, what they really look at is the fact that the intersections between various communities are not necessarily being considered by advocates, some advocates in, in different community spaces. So for example, we can see that there are certain you know, more minority or smaller scale in Australia religious groups. So for instance, if you're of Islamic faith or Jewish faith, um, or other minority faith that is also potentially linked to a multicultural community or to an immigrant community, your concerns when it comes to religious freedoms or um, religious discrimination will be ones that are also based around racism, uh, race-based attacks, and religious, multicultural, and race-based. Then you've also got the potential wedge that, that that's then being used. So you've got this idea that people of colour or multicultural people um, tend to be more religious as a perception. And then you've got this idea that religious people discriminate against LGBTI people. And while there is obviously, um, there is a lot of experience of that within the queer community, uh, that's not necessarily the case. And we've got here the um, Australian Christian Lobby and the far more conservative groups being the very vocal ones in this religious discrimination debate who are putting a particular view mm. and they're putting a view that is one that is, you know, not one that folks from the LGBTI community would prefer. What we're trying to do is be that voice of progressive multicultural people who are able to indicate firstly that to be a person of multicultural background doesn't necessarily mean you're homophobic. It can also mean that you are of the LGBTIQ community yourself and that people shouldn't have the right to discriminate against your community either, whether it be the LGBTI community nor the multicultural or multi-faith communities. It did seem like, in particular, after the marriage equality survey, there was a narrative that grew up around multicultural communities mm. being homophobic. You are a member of the LGBTIQ plus community yourself and obviously yep. a member of a multicultural community. Can you give us some insight into, say, some public perceptions that you've seen discussed that you think are inaccurate? Absolutely. So uh, the way that I talk about my experience in that campaign in particular, so I was active on the Yes campaign, um, and I remember at the, at the Sydney uh, announcement as to what was going to happen, um, I stood there with bated breath with my fellow colleagues from the Yes campaign, and we were really excited and when we first heard the result we were overjoyed but then as soon as we turned to our news feeds online to celebrate our hearts also sank because for many of us including myself i grew up in outer western sydney um, that's my home that's where so much of my experience is from and we saw the no uh, indications start to come in and then we saw what happened on social media when white queer community members started to turn on on people of colour or uh, multicultural communities out in outer Western Sydney and so-called no voting areas. And we also know that the no vote was tied to a religious vote. However, what hasn't been done and what needs to be done is active work with people in those communities. Active conversations need to be happening to make sure that that 
that changes because we are proof, many people involved in democracy and colour are proof that people from outer Western Sydney can be queer and can be of multicultural uh, faith or, or background and um, can also be progressive. And when it comes to this religious freedom legislation, I know that there are a number of groups that are actually in support of this, including LGBTI groups, in the sense that they believe there are religious freedoms that do need to be uh, built into legislation because uh, often in particular people of multicultural backgrounds, and as you were alluding to earlier in one of your earlier answers, um, are, are subject to discrimination on the basis of their faith. What kind of protections would democracy and colour like to see? Sure. So we would like to see protections that ensure that um, someone is able to practice their faith in a way where they essentially don't, don't experience discrimination. But we also want to make sure that it is a shield and not a sword. So we want to make sure that people are protected and people are able to uh, go about their lives, their everyday lives, participate in their religion in a way that is uh, fitting for them. But in doing so, they're not able to actively discriminate against others. So this should not be a license to discriminate against other members of the community because of your personal beliefs. You should simply be able to hold your personal beliefs and practice them. And is your sense that when you engage with the government, they are sympathetic to these kinds of views? I think it's it's mixed. Uh, certainly there are people within the government who are sympathetic to our views and who understand where we're coming from uh, and there are others who uh, there are conversations that are ongoing are there other issues that democracy in colour is concerned about presently yeah you, you were alluding to this again before regarding discrimination within the lgbti mm. community against people of colour yeah i think um i think it's really important that in this moment we look again at the way that we in the LGBTI community opening ourselves up to diversity and opening ourselves up to people in the community to make sure it can be as large and as inclusive as possible. Uh, uh, As we were talking about before, after the marriage equality um, plebiscite was over, we saw how the the far right commentators went out on media and even the Prime Minister at the time, I believe Malcolm Turnbull, went out and said things along the lines of Muslim people are homophobic and look at what they've done and look at how they're how they've come out against queer people and trying to wedge those who are on the progressive side of politics where with their anti-racism views and their um, pro-LGBTI views and I think that in in this particular case and with this particular issue it's so important that we're making sure that folks who uh, are of multicultural background are just as protected as folks are of LGBTIQ backgrounds and that we do have a broader understanding, particularly within, you know, as queer people and as LGBTI people, um, an understanding of what actual diversity within our community looks like and it can be that people are of multi-faith backgrounds as well. Sometimes your culture and your religion and your community and your diasporic community in particular are so tied up that you don't want to leave one behind in order to be another you know you may not want to leave your hindu faith behind in order to be active in the queer community and the, the two can go hand in hand do you, do you mind me asking when you engage in with the with the queer community or or mm. your colleagues at democracy in color or other friends of yours who are lgbti and uh, multicultural engage in say queer spaces or you know gay, gay bars etc is there a sense of acceptance 
Yeah, I think it's definitely mixed and I think it depends on which areas of the community you're engaging in. I think, uh, for example, gay men who are also uh, of multicultural background tend to find that they don't have a uh, particularly enjoyable experience in more mainstream avenues like Grindr or in Sydney on Oxford Street where there is a lot of that, you know, in quotation marks, no spice, no rice, or just blatant discrimination. Racism, yeah, absolutely. Exactly, Mm. exactly. Um, And I think it's potentially a bit more insidious in the same-sex attracted women community where it may not not be as overt, but maybe, you know, people might not be as interested in you on Tinder or at bars, but they just may not say what it is, but you you always get a sense, and we do discuss it amongst ourselves, the sort of more microaggressive experiences we may have had. And then, of course, there's further complexity where our folks who may be non-binary or trans have had to navigate these spaces along cultural lines and also the community itself. And I think, I think within the broader progressive community or movement or whatever you want to call us, I think we just need to be have some compassion for each other like look at Mm. we do need to look a little bit at where people's intentions are and where they lie and i think sometimes people can fall behind that oh my intentions are good and use that as a a way to get out of it Mm. but i do also think that sometimes people are trying and we need to come into it with a with a preface that okay this person may have said the wrong thing or they may have said something that was a bit questionable Mm. what were they trying to do Mm. where were they trying to go and then how have they reacted now to me sort of talking to them about it? I don't like to call people out. I prefer the, the term calling in or, like, trying to work with people mm. um, and seeing how they how they react when you sort of say, oh, hey, I actually don't think that was okay. This is some reasons why. If they get defensive and start really getting upset, then I think that I think it can go maybe a different way. Yeah. But I think if... Um, if they are willing to listen and they are willing to learn and um, learn from their mistakes, then I don't think there's a particular problem with that. Hmm. Having said that, though, I think how this all plays out in the public arena is very different. I think people who are going out and speaking to the media on a regular basis or who are maybe uh, politicians or in representative roles do have more of a responsibility to be careful on this, hmm. um, where it's it can be a bit harder to have, you know, those conversations in the public arena and it is all about the soundbite and the snippet. Mm. So I, having said that, I recognise that it can be even harder in that context as well because people are just sort of watching you and waiting for you to fail. Um, mm. But I think, I think in, a, in a more personal or in a smaller context, looking at how we can actually talk to each other and learn from each other and building more of that culture because I think otherwise we're just going to divide ourselves and we're going to lose people. And that was Neha Madak speaking with Toby Halligan. That's all for us today. I'd like to thank Toby Halligan, Saeed Shri, Nicholas Kamenu Sandri, Rachel Tyler Jones, Dee Mason, Emily Johnson, and everyone at the Community Radio Network for their help. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Ponce. 
and we'll be back tomorrow. Mahalo. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.